Welcome to the Cello Sherpa Podcast, where we explore all aspects of the climb to the summit from intermediate musician to the professional stage. Check us out online at thecellosherpa.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thecellosherpa. I'm Joel Dallow, your host. I joined the cello section of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra in 1999 and founded the Riverside Chamber Players based in Roswell, Georgia in 2003. Today's episode is sponsored by Clear Resources, your premier resource for compliance, legal, ethics, and risk. For more information, visit them online at clearresources.com. Alan Pendleton Troyer joined the first violin section of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra in 1991. She has also appeared as a soloist with the BSO numerous times in a variety of styles, including classical, jazz, rock, and fiddling. We thought it would be great to have a conversation with Ellen about her impressive and versatile career on the violin. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. It's great to be here. So let's talk about your journey to the Baltimore Symphony. Did you grow up in a musical family? Musical family, I guess you could say that. My grandmother, maternal grandmother, was a very small town piano teacher in eastern Kentucky. And she produced three children, one of which was my mother, who were very artistic. They all played the piano, of course, because they had to. We joked that my uncle could do anything with theory, my mother could sight read anything, and their younger sister could play anything by ear. But nobody went into it professionally, but everybody had musical children. And I'm the youngest of four. And when I was born, my eldest sister was 15, other brother was nine, and then I had a two-year-old sister. My childhood was filled with everything from raucous church choir parties around the piano until 2 a.m. on a Wednesday <laughs> to my oldest brother, my only brother, uh, playing in a rock band from the time he was 11 or 12 through his 20s. Mm-hmm. My eldest sister singing show tunes and Judy Garland songs and anything basically by Joni Mitchell. And my other sister, Curtis, we both started music as children. I was six and she was 12. Uh, She's a flutist. There was a mishmash of rock, show tunes, my little violin songs that I was practicing, Uh whatever the local soprano was belting out around the piano at 2 a.m. Music was constantly on in my house. My eldest sister jokes that she's responsible for my career in music because as a baby, she would play for me with her guitar next to my crib. Mm-hmm. And my fir- one of my first words was for her guitar. And I called it a la-la ah. because when she sang, she went la-la-la. You know, <laughs> I'd point to it and say la-la and she would sing me to sleep. So yeah, music is definitely, definitely part of my family. Yeah. So how did you end up then taking a career path that led you to the Baltimore Symphony? I guess it's probably how a lot of us who went into the music industry, we all at some point in our young lives decided, wow, this is a pretty cool thing that I'm doing. And people clap when I'm done. Very few jobs, people clap when you're done. (laughs) That's true. And (laughs) they like what I'm doing. They think I'm good at it and they're going to pay me for this. Wow. Maybe I should do this. This is pretty cool. So I kind of charted my path probably at the age of 12. Uh I joke that I've always planned my life in 10 to 15 year increments. (laughs) And at the age of 12, I thought, okay, this is what I need to do. I need to be playing this piece by this age. I need to get this good by this age. And, you know, I want to go to the best music school I can get into. And if I'm not going to be a soloist, I want to play in an orchestra. Being in an orchestra became more attractive once I got to Juilliard and saw what the life of a soloist looked like. Yeah. And the living out of a suitcase and going from hotel to hotel and kind of living a lonely existence. 
And I thought that's really not something I'm attracted to. I wanted to have a regular life, as normal a life as a musician could have. So let me just back up for a second then. How did you see that just at Juilliard? I think any of us who've, who've spent any time in the Juilliard building, it's just a school full of soloists or a school full of soloist wannabes. At least it was when I was there. Yeah. I remember overhearing Nadja Salerno Sonnenberg talk in the, in the school cafeteria about just how unhappy she was that, yeah, she's got all these accolades on stage and she goes home to or goes back to her hotel room alone and just starts practicing for the next concert. And I thought, oh, that's just really sad. You know, we all think she's this amazing player. But the life she's leading, where she's on the road for three months, four months out of the year, she's home for two or three weeks, and then on the road again, the bloom was off the rose at that point. And I thought, wow, do I want to sacrifice that? So I kind of changed gears, I want to say, my second year of Juilliard and started really going gangbusters on orchestra playing, Mm -hmm. chamber music and orchestra playing. It was my attempt at, I wanted to have as normal life as possible. I didn't want to live in hotel rooms. Not that being a musician is normal. It's <laughs> strange. It's a strange lifestyle. But I wanted to be able to have a family and a circle of friends that were around me all the time, not on a phone or whatever. So I think it was probably second year of Juilliard that I kind of made that pivot. And was that in your bachelor's at Juilliard? Yes, yes, in my bachelor's. And I kind of started putting my head down and practicing excerpts and, and gearing my summers towards orchestral playing as much as possible. was able to spend three summers with Leonard Bernstein, two in Germany, one at Tanglewood, mm. two at Tanglewood, actually, and really just immersed myself in learning the repertoire, learning how to play, learning how to be a concertmaster, learning how to be a section player, learning how to be an associate concertmaster. It, there are different roles and different ways of playing. Yeah. So that kind of cemented my path. And the more I got to know people who played in orchestras, people who already had jobs in their 20s and 30s, and I saw how they were living, I thought, okay, this is what I want. Yeah. This is where I want to be. So were you at Tanglewood for Bernstein's 70th birthday celebration? I was not there for that. I remember seeing that, I think, on PBS. Was that 70? I'd have to look at that. I don't think I was there for that. Or if I was, I had a rehearsal and couldn't attend that. It was uh, 1988, I think, was the summer they celebrated his 70th. And I was there in the BUTI program. That's why I asked if you were there. Okay. In 87, 88, I was in Germany. Okay. And 89 and 90, I was at Tanglewood. So that was the year before? I think it was because I remember he came in and conducted us. And I knew who he was. And I really just thought, who's this grumbly old man? And everybody talked about what a legend he was. But now when I think back to that and I think about that rehearsal, he actually went through the rehearsal and he said, you guys sound too good. We need to put something in front of you you haven't prepared ahead of time. (laughs) (laughs) But when I look back on it, I mean, I have a picture of Bernstein hanging in my studio. Mm -hmm. So I look back and I think how lucky I was that I had that one opportunity to have a rehearsal with him for a couple hours, even though at the age of 14 or 15, I didn't really appreciate what that meant. Yeah. I have to say, uh, my first encounter was with him at Juilliard with Mahler 7. And then the two summers, I was, I was his concertmaster for two tours that we did with to Russia and to England with some pretty, <laughs> the Rite of Spring was one of the, for a bunch of students, it was a bit difficult, but yeah. <laughs> we got to hang out with him more in Germany in a social sense than we did at Tanglewood. George Gramophone threw us a huge party the night before we left. And I was dating a guy, a bass player who was principal bass and the concertmaster were dating uh-huh. for this this orchestra. And the Deutsche Grammophon party, Lenny was still playing around the piano at 4 a.m. Wow. The student's flight was at 8 the next morning. <laughs> His flight wasn't until noon. 
Funny story, the boyfriend and I uh, missed our flight and ended up having to be on Lenny's flight. And <laughs> we couldn't get into the country because we didn't have the group visa. And Lenny got us in saying, Ouch. these are my kids. These are my these are my children. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> and, you know, I remember comparing passport pictures in the line. He told me I look like a New Jersey housewife. And I thought, great. Thank you. Thank you. Remember that forever. But anyway, yeah, we, we got a lot more social contact with him, and he definitely wanted to be more one of the students yeah. uh, than one of the upper crust. He never, ever, I mean, he, he actually asked us to get us out of the hoity-toity party that was downstairs and get us up to the top floor of the castle where the kids were partying. And I remember Phil Collins was on the radio, uh-huh. and it was blasting. And Lenny walks in and goes, "Is it? wait, is this Genesis? No, this isn't Genesis. And I'm like, how does he know this? How does he know this? The man is like an old dude. How does he know? You know? So, yeah, he was absolutely current on everything. Just a genius human being, a, a fantastic musician and a fantastic human being. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you got a great start to trying to win an orchestra job. So how difficult was it for you to land an orchestra job? I probably started, like everybody, you start doing the practice auditions. Mm-hmm. I auditioned for Cleveland and Boston before I had any business being on the Cleveland or Boston stage, but it's kind of like, you know, where you set yourself a big goal Yeah. and I played, I guess, well, didn't get anywhere. It was a big bunch of food to chew all at once, those big lists. And yeah. I was first year of my master's and it was kind of baptism by fire. So when I ended up taking, I think I took San Diego. Yeah. And I took Cincinnati or something. I was those seem much more manageable because I'd already done these these bigger orchestras lists. So it was like, oh, they're only asking for 10 pieces? I'm used to preparing 15. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I kind of methodically prepared myself in the sense that, okay, how perfect can I make this particular tape? I would record myself a lot and listen to myself in a critical way as if I was picking apart somebody else's play. Like, oop, mm, I heard that bow noise. Oh, that rushed. That last note was not as pretty as it could be. So I was just meticulous about that. And I probably over prepared, I want to say. I don't think anybody listens that intently in an audition, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I think it depends on the orchestra and the committee and the day of the week and the hour of the day. <laughs> yes. So your cat has chosen to join us here, it sounds like, wants to have a voice. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm actually thinking about putting the dog out because the five-month-old puppy is, is torturing the 14-year-old kitty. And so they're playing. Let me, let me go put the dog out so we okay. can have peace. I'll be right back. Okay. So while Ellen is taking the dog out, I'm going to play this clip to give you a quick preview of her impressive fiddling on the violin. Sorry about that. I thought they would do the afternoon nap thing, but apparently not. So (laughs) that is okay. Now that we know how you worked so hard to get a job in an orchestra and you put so much of your effort there, I want to play this clip so that our audience can hear what you sound like as a fiddler.
So how does someone capable of landing a job in a major symphony orchestra have such amazing fiddling chops? It's interesting. A lot of people ask me that, and I don't see it as that different than the difference between playing Brahms and playing Baroque music or playing Shostakovich and playing something that's very lush and romantic. I just view it as, as a different type of music, a different style. Mm-hmm. So the way I've learned styles, whether it was Mozart or whether it was a more Baroque sound, I would just listen to the sound that is made. And with fiddling, the bow is not attacking the string in a classical way. It's a more of a lazy way. And it's more, you're not on top of the beat, you're kind of back behind the beat. I just kind of listened to how the style sounded and then tried to imitate that. Hmm. That's basically the way I've learned every style. I picked it apart the same way I would listen to David Oistrakh recordings Mm -hmm. and go, oh, wow, he vibrated on the very end of that note, but then not at the beginning. Hmm, can I do that? I wonder what that feels like. How can I do that? I wanted to figure out if I could make my violin sound like that. Yeah, That's how I did it. And I tried as hard as I could not to sound, quote, classical. I don't know if anybody's ever heard a really, really classically trained player attempt to sound fiddly. It's, I am now going to play the fiddle versus the violin. It's very overdone and uptight and... I've tried very, very hard not to sound like that. And it's it's hard. You have to kind of switch gears a little bit, play with a looser wrist, more of a just relaxed sound, and you have to get the classicalness out of your playing. <laughs> yeah. Well, when did you start learning how to play in that style? The first time that I actually tried that was, I want to say, maybe the summer of 91 or 92. Mark O'Connor, who I'd never heard of, came to do a solo performance with us with orchestra. And apparently it was his first solo appearance with the orchestra as well. He was, you know, national fiddle champion from the time he was 12 and phenomenal guitar player. Anything with strings, that man can play. And I was just blown away by his technique. All the things that my classical teachers were telling me, keep your hands loose. Don't use pressure. Just keep everything relaxed and just move quickly and efficiently. And everything that they were telling me he was doing Mm -hmm. in a fiddle sense. And it just blew my mind. So I started buying everything I could of his and ended up getting this album by his band, the, like, the New Nashville Cats. And it had this this fiddle tune called New Country on it. And I'd heard that as a nine-year-old. I think I got a Jean-Luc Pony album for Christmas when I was nine and had known that tune from Jean-Luc Pony's album. And no, excuse me, this, this, the album was Heroes. It was Mark O'Connor's Heroes because he was doing duets with all of his heroes. One of them was Stefan Grappelli. Another one was Pinko Zuckerman. And one of them was Jean Lupani, who they did this new country tune. And I tried to pick it out when I was nine years old to play. And I remember my mother coming into the room and going, that doesn't sound like practicing to me. you know. <laughs> and, and it wasn't. Instead of playing my violin, I was playing with my violin. So I thought, okay, I'm going to learn this. And this particular rendition is so fast. And it's both of them trading solos. It took me forever, but I I wrote that sucker out note by note. That was an exercise in and of itself to get that down so I could practice it and I could play it. But yeah, Mark O'Connor was kind of opened a door that in my brain and in my mind that, wow, this guy had the same technique on the violin that I remember Edgar Meyer had on the bass. I saw Edgar the first time when I was 16 at Aspen, and I was just floored. Like, how? Wait. 
he's plays, he, he makes it look like anybody could pick up that thing and do that. Uh-huh. It's well, of course, anybody could pick it up because look how he's, he has no effort going on. There's no strain. There's no muscle tension. It just, he just plays it. And Mark O'Connor was the start. And then I started getting into Turtle Island string quartet recordings and David Bradley Christian stuff and started playing some of those in string quartets here. It felt like this whole new world was opening up to me that, you know, I guess now in the, the age of the internet and YouTube that players in their 20s, you have at your fingertips every musical style and, and you can look up anything on YouTube. You know, that wasn't around then. Yeah. I had to find these recordings and figure out, wow, how do I how do I get my hands on this music or how do I play this or what do you do to do that? You know, it was the thing I did in my basement, like after I'd practiced my orchestra music, it was like, okay, now I can go down and like, I'm going to go down and, and play with that Mark O'Connor tune or I'm going to go down and see if I can figure out how to improvise over that melody or something. It was kind of like my secret alter ego yeah. living in my basement with my violin. <laughs> and this was something that so, you never got lessons on then. You just trained yourself and before there were charts written out, you listened to it and wrote it out yourself. Yeah. Wow. Because I mean, now you could go to MarcoConnor.com and just download his music. I'm like, oh my, that would have <laughs> saved me so many hours. <laughs> After talking to Mark, and I actually, you know, he and I did a duet in the summer of 96 when he came to play with the BSO. We had a party afterwards. Um, I had him back to my place with a bunch of BSO players. You know, he ended up staying until 3.30 or so in the morning. He was playing. I mean, he had a beer, and then he picked up his violin, and then he didn't stop playing until 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> that must have been really cool. It was incredible. I mean, I would be, be able to watch his hands and see what he was doing. He basically said, you know, when he was studying with Benny Thomason, everything was by ear. He would have to learn everything in that lesson and go home and work. You know, there was no notes. Yeah. So learning stuff by ear. And later on, I ended up taking Irish fiddle lessons here with a very young, very good Irish fiddle player. And he wouldn't let me use any music. And <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> but that tradition is all in your ear. It's all in your ear and in your head. Yeah. So I guess it was a good thing for me to do it just by listening. That's so cool. What are some of the most challenging fiddling pieces? Oh, gosh. From a technical standpoint, Mark O'Connor's stuff, his caprices are just, I attempted some of them and went, okay, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) It was just, I'm like, okay, this is not pleasurable. You know, he has a Star Spangled Banner variations that are phenomenally difficult. I did a couple movements from his Strings and Threads suite. Mm -hmm. It's got like 15 movements to it. I mean, all of his stuff is so intricate and it's so chordal in the sense that it's chordal in the same way the Bach Chaconne is chordal. Because he's also a guitar player and a mandolin player, he thinks in chords versus in melodies. So the bow is working like a strumming guitar or a pick. It's funny, you'd think this guy would have calluses on his left hand. His left fingertips feel like a baby's bottom. There's nothing there. I'm like, hmm. I don't understand this. I just, it's because he doesn't press ever. Oh. And he, he's just so relaxed. So interesting. I would say anything, any, his strings and threads suite, anything off of his Markology album is also just phenomenally difficult to play. Yeah. Do you have a couple favorites that you like playing the most? I love doing the solo version of his Appalachian Waltz. Uh-huh. I've done it in trios. I've done it by myself and anything, but I love doing it by myself, even though I love having a cello, a nice cello sound there or anything. I love playing that in a very acoustically wonderful environment, like a chapel or something. Is I love I love his Pilgrim's Waltz from his Strings and Thread Suite because it's, it's just so simple. It sounds like an Aaron Copeland melody that's just... It sounds like what the outdoors smells like. <laughs> <laughs> it's... 
I like that <laughs> hard description. Hard to describe. <laughs> but, there's a there's an Appalachia waltz arrangement for cello. Actually, it's quite difficult. Yeah, I've worked on it a bit. Yeah, yeah. involves okay. a lot of thumb. Yo, oh, I'm sure because you got to get that drone going. <laughs> yeah, certain things of Mark O'Connor because he thinks chordally they're not as intricate as as solo Bach pieces, but they have the same feeling in the sense that you're creating an acoustical environment and creating a chordal environment for you to play on top of. Yeah, because he usually wrote it for himself to be playing alone with nobody else. Mm-hmm. So what would you tell younger violinists who might be interested in learning to play in this style? The first thing is listen, get your ears on as many things as you can. It's so much easier now. You can get on YouTube. You can go listen to Time for Three. Those guys are incredible. Listen to Mark. Listen to Stuart Duncan is another violinist that's out there. It seems like there's a lot more that schools in general are allowing players to explore this more i mean my god when i was at juilliard they didn't even have a jazz program so i mean they were like being crowbarred into the 21st century but i've asked a lot of my younger colleagues in the baltimore symphony people who just a few years ago were in school i said did you ever take an improv you know improvisation class at school was anything offered and they were like not really i'm like wow Really? Yeah. Because we had Tracy Silverman come do um, the Dharma at Big Sur concerto with us recently. And the younger players were just like jaw-droppingly impressed Mm -hmm. (laughs) with this guy's playing. As Mark told me early on, he said, if you want to learn to play and improvise, you need to connect your brain with your fingers. And he said, start by singing and playing Happy Birthday. Start by singing and playing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Stars. Find a tune that you know really well with your voice and play it with yourself singing. It'll help connect what's going on in your head with your fingers so that if you can sing something, you can play it. You won't be thinking about fingering. You won't be thinking about where am I going? What is the interval of this note? You'll just do it. Uh I would say try and take as much improvisation classes as you can. I wish I had at the age of 17 or 18 been exposed to that type of thing. And maybe I wouldn't have been ready for it because once I was in my 20s and I got into the BSO, I had the time, you know, after I practiced my orchestra music, I'm like, oh, okay, now I can do this. I probably wouldn't have given myself license to do that as a younger person because I would have thought, oh, I'm taking away from practicing or technique or whatever. I, I, should, I shouldn't be doing this. I felt like I had the intellectual space to go there. Yeah. Kind of the same way I ended up taking a couple of classes at a local college here after I got here because there were things I was interested in that weren't offered at Juilliard. Right. And now I had, ooh, I have Mondays off. I can go attend with all the, you know, the retired ladies. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> It is interesting. I do often think, though, because especially being in the music business, we play so much different music. I mean, we play pops music. We play our traditional classical music. We play new compositions that... I almost feel like we should be exposed to all kinds of music because it's going to come across our stage at some point. If we have a full-time job, we're going to run into this. And if you really want to appreciate all the genre and even the so-called pops concerts that people don't like to play all the time because they're not always as challenging, there are things that we can gain from that. And I think it's important for us to understand what the general public is listening to and consuming if we want the general public to remain interested in what we do. And so that means we have to also open our minds and not be so snobby necessarily about all of, well, this is the only traditional thing that I'm willing to do. Yeah. So I think that's great. This kind of opens that same door in a different way. And I think it's best for all of us to be thinking about that if we want to be versatile 
as musicians. Absolutely. And for young musicians now, what's playing on your Spotify list today is going to be on your pop stand in 10 years. Yeah. So, <laughs> you <true>. know. <laughs> I always joke, it, we get the stars on their way up and on the way down because our hall can only seat 1800. So mm-hmm. once they start to peak, <laughs> they're not going to be in our symphony hall. <laughs> yeah. So, is there anything else we might have missed? I wish that someone had told me that it was okay, that I was allowed to take a step away from the Tchaikovsky concerto and and maybe practice and expose myself to this kind of music, Mm -hmm. because I would have been farther along as a 25, 26, 27-year-old if I'd been exposed to this and could have dabbled in it at a younger age. So advice to the young folks out there, get out your instrument and play what you hear on your Spotify list. Play around with it. Yeah. And... Don't be so concerned with, oh, I didn't make that shift or I've got to make that note perfect. Just let go of technique for a little bit and just play and see what comes out. <laughs> yeah. So I like that advice. I think that's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and where can people find you online? Well, I'm an old person, so not a lot. Most places that you find me online are YouTube, which is partly because my daughter is a songwriter. Uh-huh. And if you Google her name, suddenly a video or two of me comes up. Because we've played together and it's gone out there to the world. You know, I don't have a YouTube channel or anything. Think if I was 22, maybe I'd do that. Yeah. I'm happy to let you younger folk do that. Well, you are on Facebook, right? I am on Facebook. I very rarely post performances of myself. I guess, like I said, if I was 22, I'd be doing that. But occasionally I'll post fiddling videos or something like that or, you know, a throwback, whatever. But if you see me post now, it's usually because I'm playing with my daughter. Yeah. I'm usually trying to stay in the background and let her take a step forward. Oh, that's a great reason. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. Thanks, Joel. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Cello Sherpa podcast. Be sure and catch our next episode where we interview Kari Joyner, the assistant professor of cello at Baldwin-Wallace University. We talk about his journey through the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra's talent development program to landing his first university teaching position. We're here to serve you, so if you have questions or topic suggestions you would like to cover in future episodes, please use the contact page on our website, thecellosherpa.com, or tweet them at us, at thecellosherpa. You will also find information about the specific services we offer on the website. Don't forget to follow us and rate us on whatever platform you get your podcasts. This helps us climb the rankings so other people can find us. Today's episode was produced, edited, and recorded by me, Joel Dallow.